Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings fellow time travellers, as always it's lovely to have you with me for this endless journey through space and time. Uh, before we get started on today's episode, the usual customary big thank you to everyone who supports uh, this podcast series uh, by signing up to the, or being signed up to my patreon.com site. It's the financial support that comes from the Patreon presence that makes the rest of the podcast action possible. So if you're already a member, a thousand thank yous. If you're not a member but you'd like to rectify that and join, go to patreon.com, search for me by name, part with a bit of cash and sign up, become a member of the family. It's a community of history-loving, question-asking, curious types. Uh, we do question and answers, we do competitions and the vodcasts and the podcasts are all there. But it's a, it's a community of people who share ideas. So come along and join that family of like-minded types. That's the end of the advert. It's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Since Pythagoras in the 6th century BC, it was known the Earth was round. But by the 1400s, learned Europeans still only knew of a world of three continents, Africa, Asia and Europe. But in the desire for spice and the push for profit, intrepid explorers sail off into the West on a mission to circumnavigate the Earth for the very first time. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil, in last week's episode the year was 1530 and we were in Italy to see the man who ruled over an empire where the sun never set, crowned Charles V Holy Roman Emperor. Where are we this week? Hello again Paul. This week's episode is completely different. It's about one of those incredible historical firsts. The date is 1519. Uh, we're in the Spanish city of Seville, Sevilla, as five ships set off on a perilous expedition to circumnavigate the globe. The voyage was paid for by the promise of profit and great wealth. But for the courageous sailors heading off on this deadly mission, it was nothing short of courage writ large. Where are we? Well, we're all over the place, actually. <laughs> we're circumnavigating the globe today. For arguably the first time. Let's let's say it was the first time. 16th century it is, so that's the when. The where? Well, the, we'll get to it. The, sh- the ships depart from Spain and they go, they go the long way round. This moment in the story of the world 
it's one man's bad debts. <laughs> one man got himself into into uh, financial straits that he couldn't get himself out of. He owed too much money to the sort of people you really don't want to owe money to. And so to get out of it, he, he took a course of action and it made all the difference to the course of his own life and thereby to the destinies of Spain and Portugal. It's quite extraordinary. One man, he was a great soldier and a great sailor, but he was a hopeless businessman. And uh, for the likes of the rest of the world, <laughs> it changed everything. Uh, the, the story really centres around two men. One of them is by far the, the more famous, that's Ferdinand Magellan. Remember, that, that was one of those names that we, you and me, our generation, picked all that up at primary school. Ferdinand Magellan from Portugal, we knew all about that. The lesser known but more significant figure, Juan Sebastian Elcano, uh, and he was from Castilian Spain. You know, that part of Spain that was, that was Castile, that was ruled, reigned from, from Castile. So that's our two protagonists, if you like, and the way in which one has been remembered forever while the other is largely forgotten is a fascination all on its own, but it, but it is entirely dwarfed by what unfolded in the sequence of events. Background. Um, every, everyone has fun with the idea of the world being flat. You know, to this day, there are, you know, the, the so-called flat earthers who insist that the world is not a ball in space, but a, a flat disc, a, a plate, uh, you know, turtles all the way down and all that. I remember at school, I, I, probably around the same time as I learned about people like Ferdinand Magellan and Christopher Columbus, I remember being told at school that at that point in Europe, almost everyone thought the world was flat. And that if you sailed in a straight line far enough, you'd just fall off the edge. You know, maps with here be dragons and, and all of that. I remember I, that was that I was definitely taught that the that the European world uh, thought that the world was flat. But it's highly unlikely that that was ever really the case. I, I, I mean, while we're on the subject of the flat earthers, that whole philosophy's resurfaced to some extent recently, and I, I'm, I'm not sure why. Uh, but I, I, I've certainly started. Seeing that again, <laughs> talk of talk of flat earth, and I, I'll make no bones about it. I find the whole idea fascinating because it's worked out in such a complicated and persuasive manner uh, that you can easily get swept along by. <laughs> There's some great documentaries out there, and by the end of it, I'm blinking with confusion about what I've just watched. Um, but I've I've actually wondered if the the whole flat earth thing isn't a protest at some level by some uh, portion of that contingent. I, I think for many of those who feel that we have been, or that they have been consistently told a lot of bollocks by the state about about everything, um, or, or certainly about all manner of things, I think they respond to that feeling of chagrin and irritation by saying, in effect, if you're going to expect me to believe that, then I'm going to insist on believing this. You know, I, th I think some of the flat earth thing is just a protest about being told a lot of nonsense about so many things. Anyway, anyway, that's a conversation for another day. But as I say, I definitely remember being told that when I was getting the whole Christopher Columbus story, I remember certainly being led to believe that he was obsessed as a young man with the idea that while he was surrounded by people that thought the world was flat, that he and he alone was convinced the world was a ball. And that on account of that, you know, for a, for, a, for a Spain and a Portugal and an Italy and whatever that was obsessed with getting into the East 
to get to the to the wealth of the east that you had to sail east. That that was the only way to go there. But that that Columbus, because he understood uniquely that the world was a globe, that you could sail into the west and end up in the east, you know, by effectively going the other way around. And that was certainly, I think, something that we were all encouraged to think, that the world was full of intensely stupid people, uh, with a few geniuses dotted through it. And maybe that's the case, and maybe it's not. But the truth is that there have always been those who understood in their own philosophy that the world was a ball. Pythagoras, in the 6th century BC, understood, to his own satisfaction, that it was a globe. 200 years later, Aristotle said the same for a lot of the same reasons. Others, you know, Eratosthenes uh, in the 3rd century BC, Ptolemy. So as far back as we go, as far back as there's writing and and, and evidence of the way people were thinking, there were those that that knew to their own satisfaction that the world was a ball. Well, in England, uh, the Venerable Bede in 700 AD acknowledged the fact that the world was a ball. Uh, And uh, if you think about it, the ancients way back, thousands of years ago, whenever there was an eclipse of the sun or an eclipse of the moon, they would have seen the shadow was curved. You know, it wasn't a straight line. It it, it was a curve. They would have been unable to avoid noticing that and drawing conclusions, you know, from that. So be careful with what you allow yourself to think about Europeans thinking the world was flat. What that European world of the 15th and 16th century, however, did agree on was that there were only three continents on Earth, which is to say Asia, Africa and Europe. And they they conceptualised it as being clustered around the Mediterranean Sea. And for the sake of argument, they thought of the centre of the world being Jerusalem. For the Christian West, if you like, at that time, that was how they saw it. So in in their concept, there was a whole missing chunk of landscape, which is the Americas. That's also setting aside that we know that the Vikings got themselves across the Atlantic a thousand years ago and bumped into Vinland, which is, you know, uh, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, northern North America. But that had been somehow overlooked (laughs) as well. But I I think... Realistically, the situation began to change for Europeans, acquisitive, ambitious Europeans, when the world began to fill up as far as they were concerned. Which is to say that for those who were on the Atlantic facade uh, in Spain, in Portugal, in Britain, you know, wanting access to those eastern markets... It was becoming problematic because the overland routes into the east, the ways, the routes that had traditionally been how people, merchants and the rest with their great caravans, they were now being interrupted by the presence of Muslim populations who were not immediately welcoming to Christians coming out of the west. And so the idea of getting into the east by going west surfaced out of just necessity, you know, necessity being the mother of invention. It's that they're being driven by trade. Yeah, I mean, so you've got these populations that want to trade, merchants, they can sail, uh, they want access, they want to get to where the stuff is. And it was getting harder and harder and more and more troublesome to get into the east by by sailing east. So the necessity to travel west in the hopes of reaching the east just began to grow in popularity and 
Obviously, Christopher Columbus was at the forefront of that. And in half a century after his time, it, it built up because you know people thought, right, I've had enough of this. We need to get to the Spice Islands and all of the other great wealth of Asia. Let's go the long way round. Of course, other things had, had facilitated that at the same time, which is better ships, bigger ships with proper rudders, rudders as we would understand them, you know, fixed in place rather than just, you know, an oar out the back of the boat. Um, multiple masts, so, you know, acres of, of sail, which lets you take more advantage of the of the energy of, of the wind. Complicated rigging, like jib, sails uh, rig jib and latin. Latin actually comes from Latin, because it was the way the people of the Latin world increasingly rigged their sails. All of it together lets sailors tack, sail into the wind, rather than always having to wait until the wind was at their backs. They could go whatever the weather. By the 15th century, the idea of the compass, the ship's compass, was already a couple of centuries old, so they could they could have a reliable sense of direction. And what had been uh, tabulated were the positions of, say, the sun and the pole star at different times of day and, and in relation to the horizon. So there was plenty of data and plenty of kit and sailing away from the land, not just coasting around, keeping your eye on the coastline, sailing out into the vastness of the of the, of the ocean blue was increasingly a possibility for those with the, with the stomach for it and the and the spine for it. Another complicating factor for a lot of merchants and, and people wanting access to the economies of the east was the signing of the Treaty of Tordesillas in fourteen ninety four. Believe it or believe it not, with the complicity of the Pope, a line was drawn down the world, from basically from the North Pole to the South, off the edge of West Africa. And everything to the west of that line was given to Spain, and everything to the east of that line was given to Portugal. So now, now it's in Spain's interests to take advantage of, of whatever lies to the west, which is what they do. Okay, so that's the background. Enter stage left, Juan Sebastian Elcano. This character that I mentioned at the top that is, you know, n nobody will have heard of him unless they've got some kind of interest in this period of navigational history. Elcano had been a good soldier. He had fought for Castilian Spain in the wars with Italy. Uh, he'd also fought for Spain in Algeria, in North Africa. So he's a very competent military man. Later, in the second half of his life, he settled in Seville and made a life for himself there as a ship's captain trading, not fighting. However, he was a poor businessman. He was a good soldier, he was a good sailor, he was a very good sailor, but he was hopeless in the world of business. And to cut a long story short, he borrowed too much money from significant figures and he got himself into debt and... When he was pressed to settle his debts, he couldn't in terms of any liquid capital. And in desperation, he sold his ship, which wasn't his, <laughs> or not technically. He was not entitled to sell that vessel, but he did. And he, he had broken the law. So now he's in serious trouble. And what he did in desperation, again, was he threw himself on the mercy of King Charles I of Spain, told him of his plight, and Charles agreed to pardon him if he, Elcano, would join, at a, an elevated level, an expedition that was being put together by the Portuguese mariner, already famous at this point, Ferdinand Magellan. And left with no other option, Elcano said yes. 
It was either that or jail. So he signed on as a, a master, not a captain, but a high-ranking member of the officer class aboard one of a fleet of five ships that Magellan was proposing to sail into the West to find the Spice Islands. Because at that time, there was nothing more valuable on the planet as a commodity than, than spice. Uh, so Elcano is a, a largely anonymous figure at the beginning aboard one of these five vessels. They are the Trinidad, the San Antonio, the Concepcion, the Santiago and the Victoria. And they set sail from Sevilla on the 10th of August, 1519. 1519. Would they have been worried and trepidatious? It, it, was, a, it was a bold move. Um, you know, it's a, it would be akin to taking part in, a, in the Apollo programme or, or, the, or the Mercury programme. They were leaving the known world and heading off into the unknown. I mean, obviously Columbus half a lifetime before. The Americas were already known, but it was still a big deal. You know, okay, Armstrong and, and Aldrin are the first on the moon, and people went subsequently, but it was hairy every time. And so those taking part, let's imagine they weren't all the most willing. There, there would have been a degree to which some of these individuals were left with no option, much like Elcano. You know, El, Elcano's arm was effectively up his back. Uh, to go and take part in this. But who knows, he was an experienced sailor and, and, and probably knew that uh, he would, with, with the wind in the right direction, so to speak, that he would be all right. But it was a, it was a bold move. Magellan was a, a, a very fiery, uh, bellicose, belligerent character. And he was a, a very strict disciplinarian, which, to be frank, if you're going to keep five shipfuls of crew under control for years on end, this is undoubtedly what you need. But that was his personality type. But he was—he went beyond disciplinarian to being slightly unpredictable, as time will tell. And he led them off on this extraordinary odyssey. There's no other word for it. They sailed via Tenerife, then to Cape Verde, then Sierra Leone. And then they struck out across the Atlantic, making landfall in, well, what we would know as Brazil. Then the Plata estuary and onwards to uh, Patagonia because they knew about the Americas but they're, they're trying to suss out exactly what is going on I mean, to the end of his life Columbus thought that the Americas were India hence the West Indies it's hard to imagine what a concept shift it was to, to imagine the reality of a whole new set of vast continents in between Europe and Asia to get away from the Atlantic Ocean they've got to get beyond the Americas so Magellan sails south, and what he finds, his really significant contribution to the whole story was he discovers the strait, i.e. The, the way through the bottom of South America that's subsequently named after him, the Magellan Strait, 350 miles from east to west. So that they emerge into the ocean that they then come to know as the Pacific. 64 million square miles of trackless ocean. And for a hundred days, a hundred days they sail across the Pacific. Imagine, just, you know, they're just out on the blue eyeball that is planet Earth, suspended in infinity, just tiny little vessels tracking, tracking across. By the time they start finding their way through the Magellan Strait, the Santiago, one of the five ships, has already been lost. It has sunk, okay? So they're down to four already. And, and rather than go through the Magellan Strait, the, the San Antonio turns for home, right, and limps all the way back 
to Spain and they tell the king that the other, all the other ships have sunk, <laughs> right? They just, you know, they just go home, you know, dog ate my homework sort of approach to making a report. So by the time Magellan goes through the Magellan Strait and enters the Pacific, there's only three vessels left of the original five on the expedition. Okay, so they cross 100 days across the Pacific. On the 15th of March, 1521, they arrive in the Philippines, right? New territory. And on the 27th of April, so the following month, Magellan gets into a fight on land in the Philippines that gets him killed, along with several members of the crew, right? So this is a significant development for a round-the-world odyssey. The, the captain is dead, and they're in the Philippines. So... The men aboard the three vessels, they have no option. So they sail on without him. They get as far as Borneo on the... Remember, these places don't have... These are our names for these land masses. These individuals are just discovering for themselves places that they had previously not known existed. But they reach Borneo and they leave there on the 8th of July. But they've realised that they, they don't have enough men to crew three ships anymore. There's not enough... And so they burn the Concepcion. Just do away with that one. So now, of the five ships that left Seville, there are only two. And it's getting desperate. Things are getting... You know, you can imagine the atmosphere aboard the ships. There's you know, a, good deal of, a good deal of fear has crept in. And under pressure, on the 16th of September, 1521, Elcano agrees to become the captain of the Victoria, one of the two surviving vessels. It's not necessarily what he particularly wants to do because it's an, a significant responsibility, but he, he's pushed into it by the men. And so off they go. And believe it or believe it not, on the 8th of November, 1521, so after m months more of difficult experience, they reach the Spice Islands, Malacca, in fact. This has been their destination all along. And they load up, they load up with spices, a fortune. You know, a fortune in spices, and they they begin to head home. Now you have to think that you have to sort of visualise the planet. They've they've crossed the Atlantic, gone round Cape Horn to get past the Americas. They've sailed across the Pacific. They've reached the Spice Islands, and now they're coming back around. So they're now sailing from the east back towards the west. It's very difficult to get your head around it if you're not used to you know that kind of global navigation. So, and this is an odyssey all on its own. They take a month and a half to get round the Cape of Good Hope, which is South Africa. And on the 19th of May, 1522, they have rounded South Africa and they're heading, they're heading north at this point. And they have yet more adventures, yet more hardship. And they finally reach Seville, Sevilla, on the 8th of September, 1522. They've been gone for three years I find this messes with my head when I think about it, the kind of voyages that these people undertook. You know, to leave home nowadays to be gone for a few weeks is a big deal. Never mind a few months. That would be unthinkable to many people, but, but these guys sailed off into the unknown and just had to experience it until whatever happened, happened. They just had to get on with it, and they were gone for three years uh, before they finally make it back. and I mean, many people will, will have somewhere dusty in their memories the idea that Magellan was the first person to circumnavigate the globe. Well, he wasn't. He set out as the leader of the first expedition so to do. 
but it was Juan Sebastian Elcano that got them home. He had gone out as a, as a bad debtor, but he returned home a hero. But somewhere along the line, by now, he is mostly forgotten. Almost completely lost to history. When they came back in, there were 18 European men left alive from the original crews of five. And they had also brought with them four natives from Malacca. So that was it. 22 people came back or, or came out of that expedition. Charles, King Charles, granted Elcano, amongst other things, the right to a coat of arms, which depicted the world and the legend underneath it saying, you went around me first, which is quite something. That's quite something. You went around me first. So that was his contribution. That changed the world, you know, and it was purely because a single individual had got himself into dire financial straits and he changed the course of his own life and by so doing changed the destiny of the world. A religious whirlwind that would kill thousands is unleashed in Germany. In England it becomes entangled with one man's earthly desires for a pretty woman and his obsession for a son to secure the royal line. It all turns sour and becomes a toxic mix. There is no rage like love turned to hatred or fury like a woman scorned. The king declares himself head of the church on earth and the reformation is well and truly here. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.